Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And what you're about to listen to was a sermon that was preached at our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30 with our students. So I hope that this sermon is encouraging and a blessing to you today. Thanks for listening. Daniel chapter 6, it's in the Old Testament. And I'm going to start this sermon off with a question. So, as you know, Daniel is in exile. His people have been taken from Israel into a foreign land. So my question to you is, if you knew you were going to be taken into a foreign land... Well, I'm going to strangle myself with this thing. It's not good. If you knew you were going to be taken into a foreign land... And you had 10 items you could bring with you in a backpack. What would you bring? This is like alone. Have you seen that show? It's a cool show. What would you bring? I got my backpack here. I got some things. I don't know. What are some things that you would bring? Chapstick. Chapstick? Water. Really? Chapstick? Maybe like a knife or something on me first. Okay. What are some things? Food. Map. So, you guys could discuss this in life group. Maybe your top five things you would take. The title of my sermon, the title of my sermon is called The, Pil- uh, the, the Life or Living as God's Pilgrims. And all throughout Scripture, God's people have been described as sojourners, as pilgrims. And what's the definition of a pilgrim? I looked it up. A pilgrim is a person who journeys to a sacred place for religious reasons. But I'm not going to use that definition. There's another one. It's what I mean when I say pilgrim. It's a person who travels through life to get someone. They're on a journey. So in a sense, God's people are pilgrims in a foreign land. So I got my, my backpack here. I got some things that I would probably take. I, my first and foremost would be probably a picture of, of me and my wife, you know. People that I, that, I, that I remember, that I love. You know, those things are the first thing when a house is, is burning. It's like I threw the Bible or something. It's just a picture. I got it on my phone, too. You know, I have, I, I have you know, I'll probably bring my Bible. If I'm going to China or something like that, it's outlawed, so I'm going to need that. You know, some of you are like, I have it written on my heart, so I'm good. Um, I'd probably bring one of my favorite books, The Pilgrim's Progress. All right, and it goes with our theme tonight. It's honestly a wonderful book. I have to bring John Calvin's Institutes, all right? That has to come with me. I can maybe forge this, you know, fire. There's fire. You know, I can use this for fire. I don't know if I, if I get myself to... Anyways, what else do I got in here? That's all I put in there. Oh, I bring deodorant, that's for sure. (laughs) That's all I got. What? We are pilgrims, right? Abraham was called a pilgrim, a sojourner. In fact, God's people, Israel, were called sojourners or pilgrims. They wandered through the wilderness. They didn't have a land. Psalm 39, David calls himself a pilgrim. Jesus himself was a pilgrim. Not only was there no place for him in the end, but in Matthew, I think chapter 8, yep, he says that there was no place where he could lay his head. He didn't have a home. He was a pilgrim. And then this comes full circle when Paul and Peter 
tell God's new covenant people that they are pilgrims whose citizenship is in heaven, not on this earth. See, the Christian life is the life of a pilgrim. This isn't our home. We travel through this land. We go through trials. And we look forward to the day when we come to the heavenly city. Or when Jesus returns and brings that here to this earth. And what Daniel 6 wants to teach us is that we are God's pilgrims. But specifically, it wants to ask this question. How are God's or or what are the characteristics of God's pilgrims? Christians living living in a foreign land. How should we live as God's pilgrims? And we're going to see three things in our text. Tonight, which I have split into two parts of the sermon. I have another sermon on this passage, okay? And the first thing that we learn about God's pilgrims is this that they are to be faithful, they are faithful in the face of hate. Daniel is going to be our example here, although he's not the greatest example because he's still a sinner. We all know that Daniel points to Jesus. But Daniel is faithful in the face of hate. So let's read along uh, verses 1 through 9 here. Verses, let's go 1 through 5, okay? So Daniel 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. Those are like politicians, okay? To be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, he put three high officials of whom Daniel was one. To whom these satraps should give an account. So Daniel's all over, he's over the 120. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned, he was so distinguished among them, he was so uh, faithful to his position that the king planned to set him over the whole entire kingdom. Verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And so we see two things here. First, we see the faithfulness of Daniel in the face of hate. We see the hatred of the world. Daniel is now in his 80s, okay? So he was a teenager in Daniel chapter 1. 70 years have pretty much passed. He's lived through the Babylonian kingdom. The reign, Nebuchadnezzar is gone. Belshazzar was assassinated. And now the Medo-Persian empire is now in control. Daniel is in his 80s. And he has been faithful to God and to those kings and those kingdoms for all 70 years. He's still a high-ranking official, From his teenage years all the way to now in his 80s. There's something to be said about that. About the character of Daniel. He's living in a foreign land. And yet, he is faithful to his God. But also to the kings of Babylon and now Darius. See, Daniel, here's the point. Daniel was in the culture 
but he was not of the culture. He was in it. He, he swam in it. He was, he was a politician. He, he, he gave counsel to the, to the kings. He was involved in major decisions. In fact, he, he was put over control of the whole entire kingdom, kind of like Joseph. And yet, he was faithful to his God. The, the, he was in the culture, but not of the culture. On one hand, he doesn't withdraw and try to like find out a plot to kill these pagan, wicked, wicked kings. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't revolt. He doesn't withdraw. Nor does he assimilate into worshiping their gods. He holds his ground. He does not worship their idols or adopt, adopt their culture as his own. He is faithful to his God through and through. And thus, what does it say in verse 3? He is highly distinguished. And that is exactly how Christians should be viewed in the workforce, in our culture. They should be of the most integrity. They should have the most integrity. They should be the most trustworthy. They should be the most consistent with their morals because they believe in the moral authority of God, the true God. And Daniel here is just a phenomenal example of his faithfulness for 70 plus years. He is faithful to God and he is faithful in his role that God has put him in in the kingdom. He is not swayed at all by their values, nor does he give in. That's pretty amazing. I think especially in our modern culture, in our modern world, people are so swayed by the trends of, this time, of our time. Christians especially, you know, we're, we're, so, we're so swayed by the world and what it, what it loves so much so that we even, even the American church in America, their whole services are not based towards Christians, but they're all about catering to non-believers, And so they sell out for the world in order to bring people in. Daniel doesn't even do that. He is faithful to his God through and through. If I were to take a poll amongst your friends, teachers, coaches... You know, would that be something that describes you? Faithfulness. Daniel's life was so completely free from corruption and negligence that not even his enemies can find anything to cancel him for. I mean, they, so what happens in the text is these guys get jealous of the success that Daniel is having. And we find out later, they actually are racially motivated to take them out. They definitely think that they are superior and of the superior race than this lowly Jew, this exile from Judah. And so they do this ancient dirt digging, you know, kind of like what you do is you stalk people on Facebook or Instagram. You're trying to find dirt on people to bring it up. This is the ancient form, form of cancel culture, you know? This is it. They want to cancel Daniel. They want to they find some political dirt on him and then bring him to nothing. 
We see this in the text. It says, these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law to his God. Verse six, then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors, except for Daniel, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, they should be cast in the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. They hate Daniel so much. They, find, they could find no grounds to disqualify him except that if they attack his faith, which means that his faith was public, right? They must have known. He must have been living it out in front of them. There are so many culturally relevant things today that this applies to. So I have to do some cultural apologetics, as always. Back in 2017, Judge Russell Vaux, he was appointed by Trump to a lower court, not the Supreme Court. And he was a graduate from Wheaton College. He's a Christian, a God-fearing believer. And so he is appointed to be a judge, and now he's having a Senate hearing. And Mr. Bernie Sanders is there now questioning Mr. Vo. And Bernie attacks Mr. Russell, not on any grounds related to his character or any record or, or doesn't attack him on the basis of his record in law, his job. So he then attacks him on the ground of his faith, calling him an Islamophobic for saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven and Muslims, like all sinners, should repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And he says in front of all the Senate, this man is disqualified from being a judge. He does not have my vote. And there's this awesome exchange between the two. And I love watching it as Bernie's face gets so red and angry. You can see the vitriol in his eyes. As Russell defends the fact that he is a Christian. He, he wrote that as a Christian. And he's able to have that in this free country. See, he was faithful. Even Russell, he stands his ground. He's faithful in the face of hate. I even think of Supreme Court Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Who was just appointed. She's an outstanding judge. And yet, the only thing that they could find grounds for is her religion. She is not fit. This is exactly what is happening to Daniel. And so we see the cultural relevance. Yes, we see the faithfulness of Daniel, but in the face of hate. Student, you need to understand this, that the world is against you. It is not your friend. Even in our own country, there are people in power who abhor the Christian faith and practice and hate Christians themselves, which as pilgrims, that should be no surprise to us. Listen to Jesus's words in John 15, 19. He says this, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Does the world love you? Well, if you're of the world, then the world would love you, Jesus says. But because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, saved you, chose you, elected you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That, that's Jesus' words. Right there. Student, 
You may not have been attacked like that personally, but in subtle ways, your flesh, temptation, we're always being attacked. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, deliver, me from, uh, deliver us from temptation, from evil, right? And so have you been faithful in the face of hate? To whom does your allegiance lie? And see, we, we see Daniel's allegiance is to God. And as a pilgrim like Daniel, we are to be in the culture, but not of the culture. Jesus said it best. Write this verse down. Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's how we're to live. Amen? That's right. Let your light shine. Let the light of Christ shine. The world is after you, wants to change the way you think, ultimately wants to draw you away from God. And they do this subtly through, through music, through Hollywood, through fashion, art, sports, Disney, shows, all these things. Which, if you think about Disney, I'm sorry I'm attacking it, but almost every Disney movie starts off with some attack on the nuclear family. But you know that. There's a dad that's not in the picture, dad Bambi, dad dies. There's some trauma that has to do with destroying the, the nuclear family. Cinderella doesn't have a dad, so on and so forth. We could talk about that later. In subtle ways, the world tries to do this until it becomes so obvious and there are laws that are coming that will outlaw and criminalize Christian speech and behavior. We are called to be faithful. The world hates us. So then how then do we live in the world? Do we revolt? Do we take these people out? Do we start a civil war? What does Jesus say? You love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. Isn't that Daniel? That's the first thing we see in the text here. It's Daniel's just faithfulness. This is why I'm not going to preach on the whole entire chapter because I'm already 17 minutes in. And uh, there's no way I'm finishing it, okay? But point number two, the second thing that we learn in this text, what happens? What, is, what does Daniel do? They've, they've tricked the king here. So what happens in this situation? How do they do that? The second thing is God's pilgrims are to obey God, not man, okay? Now, I've got to qualify that. So you're like, oh, I don't have to obey my parents? Okay, fine. You know, what does that mean? I'm going to explain it. But that's the second point. God's pilgrims obey God, not man, I already read the text for you. These high officials, they they can't find anything against Daniel. And so they go to the king. Oh, King Darius, live forever. Verse 7. And and all the officials are there except for Daniel. They do this behind their their back. And they kind of trick the king, but they're also working for his good. Into signing this document, this decree, that would outlaw. What does the law say? In verse, I think it's in verse 7. It says, establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition, a prayer, or asks for help to any God or man for 30 days, except for you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions. So what's so interesting here is that this, these men who plot and devise a plan to take Daniel, they knew that Daniel's allegiance was to God and not to man. And so they attack him on the basis of his faith. Now, you may think that this is like some religious law that the king is making, but it's actually a political one. It actually has to do with politics, okay? 
Because it's a new kingdom. And so there's disunity. And they want to create unity. So what butter, better way, butter way, better way to create unity than by making Darius the only mediator between the gods and men? That's what they say. They can't make any petition to any gods or man except for you, Darius. And so they're going to unify the whole kingdom in Darius. Basically, the government will be God. The one where they will find all their earthly blessings. So, of course, Darius is thrilled to sign this into law, not knowing fully what he is doing. See, you remove people's religion until they see that government is God in their life. And this is the plot of Daniel 6. And it's the plot in our day as well. It was the plot in the Soviet Union's day. Uh, they, they got rid of all religion so that they could put their trust in Stalin and the state to provide what only God could provide. That's what they've done to Daniel. Now, you may ask, what about Romans 13 and 1 Peter 3? You say, obey God and not man. Aren't there passages in Scripture that call us to obey the government, to submit to the government, to honor the government and our governing officials? So what's the balance here? Because obviously, Daniel, he's very honoring of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's been very honoring of Belshazzar and Darius. He's been an upstanding citizen. Yet, he goes into his, his room and totally disobeys. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had the windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So what gave Daniel the grounds to disobey the governing officials? Here's the answer. We obey God and not man. When earthly governments overstep their sphere of authority by trying to silence, outlaw, restrict, or criminalize things that God has commanded in his word. Has not God commanded in his word that we are to pray? Has not God commanded in his word that we are to sing? That we are to gather? There are things specifically in God's word... That we are commanded to do. And if government comes in and says you cannot do those things, that's when you disobey. And that's exactly what Daniel does. Daniel is a phenomenal example of this. He is blameless before the king, yet his allegiance is to God. Even when he knew that he was revolting against the law of the land. Student, I believe in this lifetime we'll face things like this in our own culture sooner than later. Where we will be forced to make a decision. Where will our allegiance be? In fact, eight days ago in Norway. In the name of LGBTQ plus protection, Norway's parliament passed a hate speech law stating this. People found guilty of hate speech face a fine or up to a year in jail for private remarks and a maximum of three years in jail for public comments, according to the penal code. This is happening today in Europe, (laughs) that the government is able to come into your house, 
and bring you to prison for up to a year if you say anything that is against the LGBTQ plus community. If you quote Leviticus or 1 Corinthians 6 in your house, boom, you're in jail. What are the Christians going to do there? They have to obey God rather than man. And Daniel is a phenomenal example of that. And I just love the way that he does it. This is our time. This is our world. This is the life of a pilgrim. And so how does Daniel respond? And how should we respond? By not only obeying God rather than men, but as pilgrims we are to lastly, lastly, my last point, is to travel through life on our knees. Travel through life on our knees. And this has to do with prayer. Prayer. I love Daniel's response in the face of hate. What does he do? What would you do? How would you respond to that? Maybe you'd run up to the king. Darius, I'm one of your highest officials. Please don't do this. Can you change your mind? Maybe you go on Facebook and you get a thousand people together and you go on a rally and you go and you 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 go on a on a march. What does Daniel do? He gets on his knees. He gets on his knees in prayer. When Daniel heard the law, he continued to do what he had already always done. And so is prayer your first inclination? Dear pilgrim in here, Christian, pilgrim, we travel through life on our knees. It's to be a life of prayer in these, just these two verses in Daniel, in verses 10 and 11, verse, verse 10, we see a few things about prayer from Daniel. First, we are to be persistent in prayer. Persistent in prayer. Here's something that blew my mind, and I know that you love God's word, so you're really going to love this. About Daniel in this time of prayer. One commentator says this, Did you know that there is no biblical command for Daniel to pray three times a day? There's no biblical command. But he had made it a habit in doing so. And this is what's remarkable. As a result, what is remarkable in his behavior is not so much that the crisis drove him to his knees, but rather the crisis did not break his regular routine of prayer. He was already doing this three times a day. It wasn't like, oh, there's a big crisis. Now I'm going to pray. It was already the pattern. Here we have the secret to the 70 years of faithfulness, right? It's that he was on his knees in prayer three times a day, persistent in prayer. How much of our prayer lives are determined by crisis? We're as God's pilgrims, as uh, as God's pilgrims, Our lives are to be one of prayer. And so that when crisis comes, we are not shaken, but rather we are emboldened like Daniel, who does not cower in his closet, but rather opens up the window, faces Jerusalem for all to see. He's not a coward. He's persistent in prayer. Second thing we learn here is that we are to intercede for others in our prayers. In verse 10, in verse 10, he opens up his windows in the open chamber and prays towards Jerusalem. Why does he do that? 
Is there something special about the view? You know? Is there like a cool sunset over there? Why? Why face Jerusalem? Well, Daniel 9, I believe, gives us the content of Daniel's prayer, which focus on pleading to God to show mercy on his land and his temple, which now lay in desolation. And so Daniel faces Jerusalem to fulfill a promise in 1 Kings 8, King Solomon, as he's dedicating the temple. He says, he describes a scenario where God's people would have sinned so greatly that God will take them away to exile. But the way in which God will show mercy and favor upon them is if they turn from their sin and pray towards Jerusalem and pray on behalf of Jerusalem in 1 Kings 8, 46 through 50. And so Daniel, trusting in that promise, which were centuries before his time, is now facing towards Jerusalem, praying on behalf of his people. And God hears his prayer. See, Daniel's hope and trust is in the Lord to fulfill his promise. And so he faced the temple daily as he pled for mercy and favor from God. And God promises that in time he will save his people. And Daniel's just faithfully waiting, faithfully praying, persistent in prayer. And this leads to the last thing we learn about Daniel's prayer coming from Daniel chapter 9 is that it was filled with repentance of sin. Daniel prayed for the sin of his people that God would forgive. See, sin is anything, thought or action that does not conform to the law of God. It's finding worth, value, and satisfaction in things other than God. That's what sin is. It's the sinful craving in our heart for things that are forbidden by God. It's the lying. It's the breaking of promise. It's slandering with our tongue. It's immodesty. It's taking the Lord's name in vain. It's having anger in your heart. How many of you have done this this last week? This is all sin. And all these things are rebellion against the holy God. And the punishment for that sin is not a pit filled with lions but a pit of eternal conscious torment in hell forever. That's what sin deserves. And so Daniel cries out in Daniel chapter 9, which I believe is the content of his prayer, in repentance. And he runs to the only hope of salvation. And if you are here, and you are recognizing your own sin, your own lack of faithfulness, maybe you have been falling into the world's temptation. Maybe your allegiance has been to the world. What do you do? I would say you got to pray the same prayer that Daniel does in Daniel chapter 9. Turn there, just one page over. Daniel chapter 9. Look at verse 16. This is a prayer of confession. In verse 1 in Daniel, it says this takes place in the first year of Darius. Who's king now? And so verse 16. Look what Daniel says. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from the city of Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, 
Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is, in de- which is desolate. O God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for you, for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Why does he face the temple? The temple represents few things. One, God dwelling with man. And within the temple was the Ark of the Covenant. And that Ark represented God. And on the Ark was what was called the mercy seat, where the priest would come and sacrifice an animal and sprinkle the blood on the, on the mercy seat in order to wash away the sins of the people. And so Daniel is facing the temple as his only means of hope of salvation because it pointed to a Savior who would be slaughtered on the cross for sins so that you could receive forgiveness. God would answer this prayer in in full through the birth of Jesus Christ. But God, being rich in mercy and because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Fellow pilgrims, in response to God's gracious sacrifice to save us, let it motivate us to live according to 1 Peter 2, verse 11 and 12. This is the pilgrim's way. This is life of, as God's pilgrims. He says this, Beloved Redeemer students, I urge you as sojourners and as pilgrims to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among this world, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Does God answer Daniel's prayer? And is he delivered? That is part two of this sermon. And so you'll have to come back in three weeks to hear it, okay?